Section 17 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tulloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6, Jeremy Taylor, Liberty of Christian Teaching Within the Church, Part 1. 1. In preceding sketches we have traced the rise and development of a spirit of rational inquiry within the Church of England. This spirit is more or less connected with the movement of liberal opinion in Holland, but it is also the result of internal forces working in the church itself, torn by the conflicting tendencies which it embraced, and the invasion of Romanist influences once more assailing it. The religious contentions of the time, and the extreme and violent forms towards which they were advancing under the excitement of political interests, drove a few thoughtful minds to seek a higher solution of spiritual questions than had hitherto been imagined by any political or religious party. Hales and Chillingworth are the most prominent representatives of this higher religious thoughtfulness, the former owing his theological bias, in some degree, directly to contact with the liberal theology of Holland, the latter drawing his liberal inspiration more from the struggles of his own bold and independent spirit. Both men are thinkers characteristically. They belong to the same phase of the movement, and the remarkable group of writers and distinguished Oxford men who gathered around Falkland at Tew. Their whole intellectual life is summed up in what they did to advance the movement. Their connection with it gives them their position in the history of the Church of England. We have therefore presented full sketches of these two men, of their life and character, as well as of their opinions. Their attitude, as the leaders of liberal theological opinion in England in the first half of the seventeenth century, when the great currents of theological thought were running past them in opposite directions, and the significance of their attitude was but little understood and heeded, gives them a claim to full recognition both in their personal and theological character. After these writers there are two names which stand in a peculiar relation to the history of religious thought in England, the names of Jeremy Taylor and Edward Stillingfleet. They belong to the liberal movement of the seventeenth century, in so far as they contributed by distinct and important works to its advancement. Yet neither their special reputation, nor the prevailing character of their theological activity, has identified them with it. Jeremy Taylor's Liberty of Prophesying is among the most remarkable works of the century. Stillingfleet's Irenicum is of less significance, because less distinguished by genius and interest, and in our day it is comparatively forgotten. Yet it too claims to be remembered as marking the height to which the wave of liberal churchmanship had risen before the reaction which set in with the Restoration. The first of these works appeared in 1647, exactly ten years later than the religion of Protestants, the second in 1659, on the eve of the Restoration. Both Taylor and Stillingfleet only belong to our history, insofar as these works are concerned. Their best-known writings are of a different, and in some respects, contrasted mode of thought. At the same time, their consistency is not rashly to be questioned. Taylor was no longer a youth when he published The Liberty of Prophesying, being in 1647 thirty-four years of age, nor can he be said avowedly to have abandoned the principles which it advocated. He even expresses general adherence to them as late as 1662, in a famous sermon preached before the University of Dublin. Footnote. Published among his other works, under the title of Via Intelligentiae, Hebrews edition, 6. Yet the tone of Taylor, if not also his principles, are very different in this sermon. Coleridge, Notes, etc., page 208-209, is unduly severe. Yet Taylor's consistency can hardly be defended. His manliness certainly not. End footnote. 
Still, it is only one side, and perhaps not the most characteristic side, of his intellectual and Christian activity, which is represented in the liberty of prophesying. Taylor is much more, and much besides, in the history of English theological literature, than the advocate of a liberal eclectic theology, and of a church based upon broad and comprehensive principles. Stillingfleet is possibly more open to the charge of inconsistency. He was comparatively a young man, only twenty-four, when the Irenicum was first published, and in his later years he is represented as saying that, quote, There are many things in it which, if he were to write again, he would not say, some which show his youth and want of consideration, others which he yielded too far, in the hopes of gaining the dissenting parties to the Church of England. Close quote. Footnote. He is supposed himself to be speaking in the person of P.D. in one of his controversial writings, conference between a Romish priest, etc. He says something to the same effect in his preface to The Unreasonableness of Separation, 1680. End of footnote. Neither of these writers, in short, comes before us in his complete personality. Although they both helped the movement, and came under its influence, they do not as men characteristically belong to it. Their spirit is not essentially philosophic, rational, or liberal. Taylor is medieval, ascetic, casuistic in his mature type of thought. He is a scholastic in argument, a pietist in feeling, a poet in fancy and expression. He is not a thinker. He seldom moves in an atmosphere of purely rational light, and even when his instincts are liberal and his reasoning highly rational in its results, he brings but a slight force of thought, of luminous and direct comprehension, to bear upon his work. Stillingfleet, again, is antiquarian, formal, and controversial. His intellect is acute, hard, and ingenious, ready to cope with any subject and any opponent that may cross his path, or may seem to him inimical to the Church. He is alert alike against the Romanist, the Separatist, and the Rationalist, one of a common type of theologians bred by all churches who delight to go forth with weapons of war against all assailants of official orthodoxy and official privilege. They have their own merits, this class of writers, and Stillingfleet, as well as Jeremy Taylor, is a name of which the Church of England has reason to be proud. Her great role of illustrious writers would be much poorer if they were gone. There are few names, upon the whole, which shine with a richer or grander luster than that of Taylor. But to our list they only belong in part, at one point of their lives, and in virtue of the works which we have mentioned. We shall therefore content ourselves with a comparatively brief sketch of both, of Stillingfleet in particular, and dwell mainly on the works by which they have advanced the cause of liberal church opinion. It is also to be remarked that in dealing with these writers we get so far into a new sphere, and even traverse slightly the line of thought to which our second volume is devoted. Yet it seems better, in the view of the definite crisis which the church question may be said to have reached at the Restoration, to follow out so far in this volume the series of rational arguments raised by it. Although Taylor and Stillingfleet are separated from our foregoing group, and proceed from another university, it was the special type of liberalism begun by Hales which they carried forward. With the later Platonic type their connection is less essential than has been sometimes supposed. Taylor, moreover, is brought into the direct vicinity of the Oxford set which surrounded Falkland. In short, these two writers, or rather their respective works to which we confine attention, carry out in its purely intellectual form that earlier phase of the rational movement which was ecclesiastical rather than philosophical in its character and tendency. Subsequent controversy added but little to the theory of a comprehensive church. Jeremy Taylor was educated at Cambridge, of which he was a native. His parents are said to have been of good descent, to have traced their lineage to the famous martyr Roland Taylor, 
who suffered in the reign of Mary. But they occupied a humble position, and were glad to receive assistance in the education of their son. Their son was entered as a sizer, or poor scholar, at Keyes College in 1626, a year after Milton entered at Christ's College. There appears to be no record of his career as a student. Footnote. The sources of Taylor's biography are Heber's well-known life, prefixed to the edition of his works published in 1822, and a life by Archdeacon Bonney, an interleaved copy of which, corrected with many valuable notes, was consulted by Heber. A descendant of Taylor, William Todd Jones, had made a large collection of materials for a biography of the bishop, among which there was a family book in his own handwriting giving an account of his parentage and the principal events of his life. But this, with other manuscripts of Taylor, is supposed to have been destroyed in a fire that consumed the London Custom House. End footnote. One of his biographers has drawn a picture of the course of study he was likely to pursue, and professed to trace the influence of Bacon in some of the aspects of his mental development. But there is no evidence whatever that the Baconian philosophy had obtained any footing at Cambridge at this time, nor is there, in the characteristics of Taylor's genius, any trace of the higher culture which he would have derived from it. So far as we can trust Milton, and other authorities probably less prejudiced, the scholastic system, with its singular subtleties, still held sway in the university, and fertile and unrestrained as Taylor's mental activity was in many directions, there is no influence of which it bears more trace than that of the scholasticism still prevailing in his youth. He is one of several examples in his generation of a singular combination of poetic imaginativeness, exuberant in its wantonness, with an arid scholasticism, tedious in its love of trifles and distinctions. A medieval culture overlaid his native richness of fancy and feeling without moulding and educating it. The imaginative fruitfulness survives, but it is not well mixed, it is hardly mixed at all, with the harder intellectual grain developed by the scholastic discipline. And so, like some other writers of the seventeenth century, he seems almost to have two minds, one tender, sweet, and luxuriant to excess, the other hard, subtle, formal, prone to definition and logomachy. He is at the same time poet and casuist, orator and ascetic. The poetic, rhetorical elements lie alongside the dialectic in his genius, without blending or fusing and strengthening into a thorough, rational faculty. Footnote. Samuel Rutherford, the well-known Scotch Puritan divine, who replied in an elaborate volume to Taylor and other authors contending for lawless liberty or licentious toleration of sects and heresies, is an instance of the same poetic and scholastic qualities, ill-combined, or rather not combined at all. In Rutherford, indeed, both the poetry and the logic must be admitted to be a very inferior quality. Yet the same contrast of mental character is presented. He is scarcely the same writer in his letters, the only productions of his pen now known, and in his argumentative treatises. The letters are marked by the extravagances of a fancy lawless in its exuberance. The treatises are dull, barren, operose, and unillumined in argument to a frightful degree. Nobody without an effort can read them. And if it may seem too great a disparity to compare Rutherford in any respect with Taylor, although their controversial relation suggests the comparison, we may point to the greatest literary name of the age as illustrative of the same fact. Marvelous as are Milton's prose works, they are, especially the treatise on divorce, lacking in lofty rationality and consistency of argument. The poet is revealed in the splendor of occasional thoughts and in passages of noble eloquence, but the imagination has not blended with the understanding so as to give insight, comprehension, and light to the general train of reasoning. End footnote. Taylor became Bachelor of Arts in 1631, 
and is stated by his panegyrist rust to have been chosen fellow of keys immediately afterwards there appear however to be some doubts of this circumstance which is distrusted by heber it is not till sixteen thirty three when he became master of arts that taylor's name occurs in the list of fellows he had then been admitted into holy orders and appears from the first to have attracted attention as a preacher it was his powers in this respect that brought him under the knowledge of laud and opened up for him a new career one of his fellow-students of the name of risden had become lecturer in st paul's cathedral and wished taylor to supply his place for a short time here his eloquence and graceful person aided no doubt by the interest attaching to his youth made a lively impression and speedily procured him friends and admirers he appeared in the language of rust as some young angel newly descended from the visions of glory the fame of the youthful preacher was carried to laud just then elevated to the see of canterbury and with that remarkable appreciation of genius which we have already noticed both in the case of hales and chillingworth he sent for taylor to preach before him at lambeth he was highly satisfied with his sermon and immediately interested himself in his advancement the story is that he wished to rescue so promising a preacher from the snares of a premature popularity in london he thought him too young for such a sphere as st paul's and that it was quote, for the advantage of the world that such mighty parts should be afforded better opportunities of study and improvement than a course of constant preaching would allow of Close quote. taylor of course begged his grace's pardon for the fault of his youth and promised if he lived he would amend it such is the manner in which bishop rust represents this turning point in taylor's career and there is no reason to doubt his substantial accuracy however much his admiring fancy may have embellished the event laud was greatly attracted by taylor and used his influence in establishing him at oxford after some difficulty he was able to secure him a fellowship at all souls sheldon who was warden of the college interposed to prevent his immediate appointment notwithstanding the choice of the fellows at laud's instance but the nomination devolving in due course to the archbishop as visitor he carried out his intentions by his own authority taylor became a fellow of all souls on the fourteenth of january sixteen thirty six this is a curious and significant step in taylor's career it is singular first of all to find him no less than hales and chillingworth in immediate connection with laud at this early period taylor's mind had probably not opened to the deeper questions of his time there was nothing about him except his undoubted ability to attract the archbishop this credit must be given to laud whatever we may think of his ecclesiastical policy he had an eye for theological genius the active patron of hales and chillingworth and taylor cannot be accused of intellectual meanness or of entire misapprehension of the spiritual forces of his time probably as is often found to be the case with extreme ecclesiastics laud had no objection to an active and even liberal spirit of theological inquiry where there was no tendency to practical insubordination or political restlessness he may have guessed instinctively that none of these men would be likely to prove keen opponents of his ritualistic policy their spirit of conciliatory doctrinism made them indifferent if not in some degree disposed to ceremonies which must have appeared to them mere matters of expediency while to the puritan they savoured of idolatry their broad sense acknowledged no reason for repudiating a certain richness and elaboration of worship and in taylor's case while his speculative liberality can hardly have appeared as yet there may have been already some trace of those casuistic tendencies which afterwards matured and gave complexion to his theological culture there is no difficulty in understanding the sympathy between laud and the author of the ductor dubitantium and the holy living and holy dying 
however imperceptible may seem the links of association between him and the author of the liberty of prophesying but it is further singular to find taylor born and brought up as he was in cambridge at a distance from the band of active theological spirits that surrounded falkland at oxford suddenly thrown into their very heart in the college of which sheldon was warden and at the time that chillingworth was busy with the composition of the religion of protestants chillingworth belonged to trinity where sheldon also had been educated and we cannot tell whether he and taylor came into contact it is possible that they would not have greatly attracted each other if they did sheldon's opposition to his appointment naturally produced a coldness between the warden and the new fellow thrust upon him from cambridge against the statutes of the college footnote the statutes of all souls distinctly required candidates for fellowships to be of three years standing in the university taylor was not admitted to oxford ad eundum till october sixteen thirty five so that he had only been a few months in the university when laud appointed him to all souls and footnote this coldness is alluded to in a letter many years after from taylor to sheldon in which he thanks him for forgiving two debts one of money and the other of unkindness the latter being contracted when he did not know sheldon and less understood himself in such circumstances he probably saw little of sheldon and hence little of chillingworth the two being at this time fast friends as they had been fellow-students yet we cannot help thinking that such a moving spirit as chillingworth would make his influence in some degree felt within the college of which his friend was the head and in any case the publication of the religion of protestants in the following year sixteen thirty seven could scarcely be without effect on a mind so open and impressionable as taylor's after his appointment at all souls he continued his intimacy with laud who made him one of his chaplains he himself tells us that he was a most observant and obliged chaplain and his duties in this capacity frequently carried him away from oxford in the spring of sixteen thirty eight he was presented to the rectory of uppingham in rutlandshire the patron of which was juxon bishop of london who was probably glad to promote the young friend of the archbishop in november of the following year taylor was selected to preach at st mary's the sermon on the anniversary of the gunpowder plot and there is a story in connection with this event of his having made advances to the church of rome which were brought to an end by the hard things which he was forced to say in the sermon against the roman catholics there appears to have been no foundation for the story beyond his intimacy with a franciscan of the name of christopher davenport who was better known by the pseudonym of francis a sancta clara a chaplain to queen henrietta and one of the numerous popish missionaries whom we have so often traced as then laboring secretly in england for the overthrow of the protestant faith davenport was a man of a higher stamp than was usual with this class of missionaries and had imperiled his own orthodoxy by his liberality taylor's friendship with him was no evidence whatever of a tendency to rome but it was enough to excite suspicion and jealousy in such a time especially in combination with his relation to laud and his own ritual and ascetic tastes he continued through life as heber says to be haunted by a suspicion of a concealed attachment to the roman communion about a year after his settlement at uppingham he married little is known of his wife or her relatives beyond the fact that she appears to have resided with her mother in the parish and that her brother was a physician in gainsborough and subsequently in leeds where he died in sixteen eighty three there is an affectionate letter from taylor to him in the year sixteen forty three congratulating him on his recovery from illness and bespeaking very affectionate and cordial relations between the families at uppingham and gainsborough he had three sons by this wife one of whom died in sixteen forty two and the mother does not seem to have long survived her infant taylor's life had hitherto been a prosperous and happy one the times were troubled but he had secured powerful friends 
his genius was acknowledged, and his success had been considerable. Up to this point we have little insight into his opinions. His connection with Laud, no doubt, is sufficiently significant as to his general leanings in church and state. His sermon before the University of Oxford on the 5th of November, 1638, had vindicated his Protestantism. But of the deep and broader thoughts passing in his mind regarding the conflicts around him, we learn nothing. A mind like his, however, must have been greatly moved by the aspect of the times, and he was now about to break silence. His patron had been committed to the tower at the close of 1640, and there he lay awaiting his trial at the time that Taylor was feeling the first bitterness of domestic sorrow in his parsonage at Uppingham. It may have been partly to relieve his mind under the pressure of this sorrow, but no doubt mainly to vindicate a cause dear to him, that Taylor took up his pen in defense of episcopacy, and sent forth the first of his many works, Episcopacy Asserted Against the Acephali and Arians, New and Old. This treatise was published at Oxford, by His Majesty's Command, in 1642. Before this time, Taylor appears to have quitted his parsonage and joined the king. His connection with Laud had been too conspicuous, and his partisanship was too vehement, to enable him to hope that he would remain unmolested at Uppingham. There is no evidence, however, that at this time he was subjected to any active persecution. Probably he fled before the decree of the Parliament, in the autumn of 1642, to sequester the livings of the loyal clergy. During the two years following the opening of the Long Parliament, the air was filled with ecclesiastical pamphlets. The long pent-up rage against the abuses of the Anglican hierarchy had burst forth with irrepressible energy, Milton leading the van in his bulky argument on Reformation in England and the causes that hitherto have hindered it. The bishops were specially attacked as an order inimical to the scriptural simplicity of the church, and the main cause of its corruptions and tyrannies in England. Many sincere and devout churchmen were honestly astonished at the vehemence of the assaults made upon the Episcopal order. Both Hall and Usher entered the lists in its defense. They bore the heat and burden of the fray in conflict with the Smectimnuans and their great champion, whose genius was happily destined to much higher work. Footnote. Five Puritan ministers, the initials of whose names formed the word Smectimnus, who published a reply to Hall's humble remonstrance in favor of episcopacy, and whose work Milton defended against the moderate yet powerful criticism of Usher. End footnote. Taylor's treatise may be allowed to rank him along with these illustrious defenders of their order, but he scarcely emerges into public notice as a combatant, nor is there anything in his treatise itself that gives it special claims to recognition. It can hardly be said to be quite worthy of the subject, or to meet its real difficulties. It gives no indication of the liberal and comprehensive spirit which was by and by to expand into the liberty of prophesying. Instead of resting the defense of episcopacy on the rational grounds of Hooker, which still interest and impress all true thinkers, Taylor is content with nothing less than taking up the narrow principle of the Puritans and arguing that the plan of church government must be necessarily platformed in Scripture. The result is very unsatisfactory. Neither the statements nor the arguments of the treatise will bear examination. They are marked by uncritical assumptions and a mass of traditional pedantries which look imposing, but which weaken and obscure rather than strengthen or throw light upon his conclusions. Its chief excellence consists in the concise and rapid divisions into which he throws his reasoning, so as to bring all his points successively in good order before the reader. We have no evidence of how it was received, but no doubt it contributed, along with his active partisanship, to expose him to the severity of persecution which awaited him after the downfall of the royal cause. It was dedicated, like the liberty of prophesying, 
to one who was henceforth one of his most active and liberal patrons christopher lord hatton of kirby who had been his neighbour at uppingham and who after the king's retirement to oxford acted as comptroller of his household in which capacity he possessed says clarendon a great reputation which in a few years he found a way to diminish taylor had spent five years in pleasant rural retirement during the next few years he led a wandering and unsettled life now with the king at oxford now following the royal army in the capacity of chaplain and now apparently for a brief space as his letters november twenty fourth sixteen forty three show with his mother-in-law the place of whose residence at this time is uncertain like chillingworth he appears to have been involved in the actual disasters of the war and to have suffered for a time imprisonment the foundation for this is a passage in whitelock in which he states that the royal forces under colonel gerard having been routed before the castle of cardigan which they were besieging there were one hundred and fifty prisoners taken and among them dr taylor it is presumed that there was no other dr taylor among the royalists who is likely to be mentioned in this conspicuous manner this occurred in february sixteen forty four and during the same year there appeared at oxford a defence of the liturgy which he afterwards published in an enlarged form there also appeared, under his friend Hatton's name, an edition of the Psalter, with collects affixed, which he subsequently incorporated in his works. The substitution of Hatton's name appears to Heber evidence of Taylor being a prisoner at the time, and, except for some purpose of concealment, it is difficult to account for such a substitution. Nothing, however, is clearly known as to his movements at this period, during which he married his second wife. Heber's idea is that he was already married in the end of 1643 or the beginning of 1644 and settled for a brief space of happiness in Wales when the evils of the war extending again involved him in its vortex. To this temporary period of repose he is supposed to allude in the well-known dedication of the liberty of prophesying. In the great storm, he says, quote, which dashed the vessel of the church in pieces, I was cast on the coast of Wales and in a little boat thought to have enjoyed that rest and quietness which in england i could not hope for here i cast anchor and thinking to ride safely the storm followed me with so impetuous a violence that it broke a cable and i lost my anchor and here again i was exposed to the mercy of the sea and the gentleness of an element that could neither distinguish things nor persons and but that he who stilleth the raging of the sea and the noise of the waves and the madness of the people had provided a plank for me i had been lost to all the opportunities of content or study but i know not whether i have been more preserved by the courtesies of my friends or the gentleness and mercies of a noble enemy there is difficulty in carrying back the space of temporary quietness to which taylor here alludes so far as sixteen forty three or even sixteen forty four but there can be no doubt that the description gives us upon the whole the best general idea of his mode of life during this interval he was caught in the great storm in which so many fortunes were ruined and after remaining for some time in active service with the royal forces he returned into wales there married a second time and settled on his wife's property the story is that his wife was a natural daughter of king charles i and that she bore a strong resemblance to his well-known countenance as presented by van dyck either because the evils of the war again overtook him in his Welsh retreat, or because whatever property his wife may have had proved insufficient for his increasing wants, or for both reasons, he is found, about 1646 and 1647, keeping a school in the parish of Lanvihangel Aberbethic. Associated with him in this task were two scholars, also suffering from the disasters of the time, William Nicholson and William Wyatt. 
the former afterwards became bishop of gloucester and the other a prebendary of lincoln from this scholastic retreat appeared in sixteen forty seven a new and easy institution of grammar which is reckoned among taylor's works but the chief authorship of which has been ascribed to wyatt it has two epistles dedicatory the one by wyatt in latin addressed to lord hatton and the other in english by taylor addressed to hatton's son then in his fifteenth year in the same year appeared his great work the subject of our special criticism of the remaining events in taylor's life we can only give a brief summary his successive publications in fact constitute its chief interest nothing could damp the ardor and productivity of his genius and during the whole period from sixteen forty seven to sixteen sixty he continued to send forth from his prolific pen practical devotional and argumentative treatises in the year sixteen forty eight he published in an enlarged form his defense of the liturgy then in the same year his life of christ the great exemplar one of the most solid and interesting of his works the three following years gave to the light his well-known twenty-seven sermons and the devotional manuals perhaps the best known and still the most widely read of all his works holy living and holy dying in sixteen fifty four he put forth a controversial treatise against the roman catholics on the subject of the eucharist and in the same year the beautiful manual of daily prayers and litanies etc which he entitled golden grove in honor of the hospitable seat of his friend and patron lord carberry more sermons followed in the succeeding year and at the same time his famous work on the doctrine and practice of repentance which presents him in a new theological aspect as an original speculator on the great subjects of christian dogma footnote unum necessarium or the doctrine and practice of repentance describing the necessity and measure of a strict a holy and a christian life and rescued from popular errors and footnote the views as to original sin which he propounded in this treatise drew wide attention and called down hostile criticism not only from the calvinistic and puritan theologians of the day upon which he no doubt reckoned but from his own theological friends the venerable sanderson in particular was greatly distressed by his novel speculations he deplored it is said quote, with much warmth and even with tears taylor's departure from the cautious and scriptural decision of the church of england and bewailed the misery of the times which did not admit of suppressing by authority so perilous and unseasonable novelties Close quote. the times had brought personal honor and credit to sanderson whose conscientiousness was conspicuous in the resignation of his divinity professorship at oxford but they had not taught him toleration or wisdom he had not read or at least as heber suggests had not profited by taylor's argument in his liberty of prophesying his mind indeed was of a narrow if subtle cast and taylor's originality both as a thinker and writer could have been very little appreciated by him in recent years taylor's views on original sin have attracted renewed attention in the criticism of samuel taylor coleridge the weakness and inconsequence of his theory as well as of the extreme calvinistic theory which he designed to supersede have been set forth in the aids to reflection with acuteness and force although with something also of the wordy and pretentious amplitude of the writer on such subjects it is not difficult indeed to hit the weakness in taylor's theory in addition to the intrinsic difficulties of theorizing on such a topic taylor's tendency to illustration and exuberance of statement on this as on other topics leads him constantly into extravagance his imagination is but rarely under the severe control necessary to fortify an argument at all points and to exhibit it at once with due discrimination and force 
in the year sixteen fifty nine he republished several of his former works in folio and among them the liberty of prophesying under the title Sumbolon ethico polemicon with a dedication to lord hatton in which he defends the consistency of his views regarding the fathers whose authority he had appeared to some to pull down with one hand and to build with the other finally in sixteen sixty was published his great work which he had been long preparing and which he himself was disposed to esteem the chief pillar of his fame his ductor dubitantium or extended treatise on casuistic divinity with this work his career as an author does not indeed terminate but his significance as a theological writer reaches its highest point his dissuasives from popery the second part of which was only completed in the year of his death sixteen sixty seven and an important sermon under the title of via intelligentiae which he preached before the university of dublin in sixteen sixty two are the only writings of his later years that demand special notice the sermon in question is intimately related to the views expounded in the liberty of prophesying and generally reasserts the liberal principles of this work with modifications which were not new but which received from him a new and special prominence in the different circumstances in which he was placed End of chapter 6, part 1.